0: i've read that on the list of america's most recognizable fictional characters the subject of this story comes in at number two second only to santa claus you know who i'm talking about but you may not know of his roots in my hometown of washington dc this story begins on the campus of american university just blocks from the house i grew up in where in 1950 ed walker The university's first blind student helped found the campus radio station, WAMU. The following year, Walker was joined on air by his friend and fraternity brother, Willard Scott. After graduating from AU, Walker and Scott co-hosted a radio show called Joy Boys on Washington's WRC radio. Joy Boys ran from 1955 until 1972, and Ed Walker and Willard Scott were well known in the city for their humorous comedy sketches and avoidance of politics. In 1959, Willard Scott branched out into television, hosting a children's show as Bozo the Clown, a character created in 1946 and later franchised out to local TV stations. Scott took the role seriously, and even went to clown school to hone his skills. Bozo was a huge hit, and advertising executive Barry Klein talked his friends John Gibson and Oscar Goldstein into running ads for their local burger joints on the show. The ads were successful, and soon Gibson and Goldstein were paying Scott to do live appearances at their restaurants as Bozo the Clown. These appearances drew thousands of local kids, and the police had to close down roads and reroute traffic around the events. The partnership was a huge success for everyone involved, right up until Bozo the Clown's TV show was canceled in 1962. What were they to do? The two men still wanted Scott to be their mascot, but they had to create a whole different character for him to play. So they did. They even ran three television commercials on local DC TV starring this new character, played by Scott, with his old radio pal Ed Walker doing the voiceover. Gibson and Goldstein were local franchisees of a national chain, and the success of their local commercials caught the attention of the company's higher-ups. They decided to turn the idea into a national and later a worldwide campaign. Willard Scott, who created the character, was hung out to dry, though. Not to worry, he went on to become the weekday weatherman on WRC-TV, and then, for many years, on the Today Show. The company replaced Scott with the famous Ringling Brothers circus clown, Michael Polakov, who retooled the clown into much the same likeness we recognize today. And we all do recognize him. He's the world's most famous clown. A clown, surprisingly, born in Washington, DC. The clown, of course, is Ronald McDonald.
1: I've the country over, in each and every town.
0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to American anthology. This is your host Mike Harding, and I am thrilled to be back with you today. It certainly was not my intention that so long would pass since I wound up season 1 of this show now more than a year ago. But what a year it's been. This has been a year of living through history as opposed to reading about it in books. In January of 2020, I hit the road headed south to Mississippi where I spent about five weeks exploring the Magnolia State. I wrote some great stories, which you'll hear in upcoming episodes, and certainly heard some fantastic music. I made it back to New Orleans for Mardi Gras, and then made a beeline for Texas. It was right about then that I started hearing rumblings of the coronavirus spreading through the country. When Houston canceled its rodeo, I knew things were getting serious. Leaving the big city seemed like the best idea, so I headed for the Gulf Coast and then south from there. I made it all the way to South Padre Island, where I decided to hole up for a while and consider my options. After about a week of reading the news and talking to my friends, I decided that the best thing for me to do was to turn my headlights towards home. And here I've been ever since. It was definitely the right decision, And all things considered, it's been a great year. My mom and I took a deep dive into local history this year. We traced the battles of the Eastern Theater of the Civil War from Manassas to Appomattox. We visited most of the buildings in Washington, DC that predate 1800. We toured Maryland's scenic byways, explored local cemeteries, and got lost in the history of our own hometown. The seasons passed The summer heat dissipated. The leaves changed color and fell. The snows came and went. And finally, the cherry blossoms bloomed and told us that spring had arrived. As spring gives way to summer, it's finally time for me to hit the road again. And my plan is to spend the next few months exploring the beauty and history of the Great Lakes region. If you'd like to follow along, Come on over and subscribe to my blog at www.MilesToGoBeforeIsleep.com. That's www.Miles, the number two, GoBeforeIsleep.com. You can also find me on Facebook, on Twitter at miles2go MilesToGoTweet, and on Instagram at miles2go MilesToGoBeforeIsleep, all using the number two for me and you. You can now also find podcast-specific pages at American Anthology. By way of introduction to Season 2, I'm going to start with episodes featuring the stories I wrote before the pandemic started, so you'll get two episodes from Mississippi, and then one from Texas, and one from Maryland, as I collect new material on my upcoming travels. But before we get to all of that, I thought I'd start this season the same way I started Season 1 a few stories from my hometown of Washington DC. It just seems appropriate after being home for the last year and a half and I've certainly found some interesting stories to tell. I haven't seen any live music in a long time but that doesn't mean I don't have some great local tunes to share with you today. Our musical guest on this episode is DC-based singer-songwriter Ken Francis Wenzel. Ken has an amazing voice which is only upstaged by his truly gifted songwriting talent. As I've sat at home this year, I've really enjoyed Ken's take on the wide open roads of America. While all his songs and albums are great, this week we'll take a deep dive into my favorite of his albums, Beneath Potomac Skies. You can find Ken online at www.kenwenzelmusic.com, on Facebook at Ken Wenzel Music, and on Twitter, at Cross Kentucky. You can hear all his songs and purchase his albums on iTunes and Spotify. Lastly, you may remember that I dedicated an episode of this podcast way back in May of 2018 to my very good friend's newborn son, Mason. Well, since I've been home, Mason and I have spent almost every day together, exploring our local DC parks and watching the seasons change. For a two year old, he's become quite an intrepid little explorer. He just turned three a couple of weeks ago, so a very happy birthday to you, little buddy. This episode is dedicated to you and to all the worms that came with us, hitchhiking a ride in your tiny little fists. Now let's get on with our show. Go grab yourself a tall glass of lemonade and let me take you to the restaurants, government buildings, and iconic sites of my hometown of Washington, D.C. If only those walls could talk. Oh, the stories they could tell. Sadly, as hard as I tried, I couldn't find out definitively what happened to those walls. However, since the last time they were seen intact was in the midst of the Great Depression, you can bet that they were used for something. People didn't just throw out bricks during the Depression, nor, I would think, did they throw them out in the aftermath of the War of 1812. I would therefore be willing to guess that somewhere in this town, you could find the bricks from the Washington City Hotel. And oh, the stories they could tell. William Tunnicliffe held the grand opening of the Washington City Hotel on May 21, 1799. He had built his red brick hotel on the southeast corner of 1st and A Streets, prime real estate, to be sure, and had the backing of his friend, George Washington. One of his first guests was then-president John Adams. Despite such an auspicious start, Tunnicliffe couldn't make the hotel work, and five years later, he sold it to Pontius Stell, who renamed it Stell's Hotel. It was in Stell's Hotel in 1804 that then-president Thomas Jefferson threw a party to celebrate the Louisiana Purchase. The party began at noon with three cannon blasts and went on for many hours. It was later reported that, quote, a number of guests drank so many toasts that in the night they returned to their houses without their hats, end quote. It must have been quite a party. Stell sold the building in 1811 to Peter Miller, a well-known local baker at the time. On August 24, 1814, British troops marched into Washington and set fire to the United States Capitol, which was directly across the street from the building we've been discussing. The Capitol burned, and in the aftermath, a discussion began on the vulnerability of Washington, D.C. Perhaps the capital should be moved inland, perhaps to Cincinnati. Local landowners, who didn't want to watch their property values plummet if the capital were moved, got together to make a plan. They quickly pooled their money and built a temporary capital to house Congress and the Supreme Court while the capital was rebuilt. The site they chose was directly across the street, the one-time Washington City Hotel. That building was dismantled, and a new one was put in its place, built of brick in the federal style. And I'd be willing to bet that many of the original bricks from the hotel were used in its construction. The building was dubbed the Brick Capitol and Congress and the Supreme Court met there from 1815 to 1819. On March 4th, 1817, James Monroe's inauguration took place on the porch of the brick Capitol, the first outdoor public inauguration, starting a tradition that still lives on today. When the two branches of government moved back into the newly rebuilt U.S. Capitol, this building would be referred to going forward as the old brick Capitol. The building was converted into a private school run by St. Patrick's Church and was later used as a dance academy. It was then converted into a boarding house and several congressmen took up residence there. Perhaps its most famous resident was South Carolina Senator and former United States Vice President John C. Calhoun. Calhoun's opinions and politics made a profound impression on the House's matron's teenage niece, Rose O'Neill, who will make another appearance later in this story. Senator Calhoun died in the House of tuberculosis on March 31, 1850. By the time the Civil War began a decade later, the building had dilapidated to a point that no one was living in it. When Southern sympathizers in the area became vocal, President Lincoln had them rounded up and held them in the old brick Capitol. Bars were installed on the windows, and just like that, it became the old Capitol prison. Over the next five years, 30,000 prisoners passed through its doors. Most were Confederate prisoners of war and blockade runners, but it also held plenty of Union soldiers charged with insubordination. Three southern governors spent time in the old Capitol prison, as did famous British novelist George Alfred Lawrence, who had taken up arms for the Confederacy. Spies were held there, including the famous Belle Boyd, who you may remember from episode two of this podcast. And remember the teenage girl who had been so impressed with John Calhoun? Rose O'Neill had become Rose Greenhow, another legendary Confederate spy whom Jefferson Davis himself had credited as being pivotal to the Southern victory at the First Battle of Bull Run at Manassas. Convicted of espionage, Rose was held for five months at the prison, with her eight-year-old daughter never leaving her side. Colonel John Mosby, the old gray ghost himself, spent time there as well, later to receive a full pardon from none other than Ulysses S. Grant. It wasn't just prisoners who were housed there, though. Many formerly enslaved people who had escaped and sought refuge in the Union's capital city were also housed there while a better situation for them was discussed. It's sad that their first taste of freedom was behind bars. After the war ended, the conspirators in President Lincoln's assassination were held at the Old Capitol Prison. Dr. Samuel Mudd was eventually shipped off to the Dry Tortugas, as we heard in episode 16 of this podcast. Mary Surratt was later moved to the arsenal from where she stood trial, was convicted, and hanged, the first woman executed by the U.S. government. Heinrich Wirtz, The Swiss-born Confederate commander, who had overseen the atrocities at Camp Sumter, better known as Andersonville, the Confederate POW camp where 13,000 Union prisoners had died in just 14 months, was hanged in the yard of the old Capitol prison. Two years later, the building was sold to then-Senate Sergeant-at-Arms George Brown, who converted it to row houses. In 1921, these row houses were purchased by the National Women's Party, fresh off of their successful effort to pass the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. In a tragic and ironic side note, many of the women working for the NWP lived in Washington, which is not a part of any state, and were, therefore, not able to vote for president until the 23rd Amendment was passed in 1961. Citizens of Washington, D.C. today, women and men both, still have no voting representation in Congress. When the NWP purchased the property, they began an extensive remodeling project. In addition to their offices, there was a small museum dedicated to the fight for women's suffrage, as well as meeting and conference space. The rest of the building was converted to a hotel, where members could stay when visiting Washington, bringing in some way the property at 1st and A Streets full circle back to its 1799 roots. While the National Women's Party continued their noble work in pursuit of equal pay and opportunity of employment and began to work on the Equal Rights Act and extending their influence overseas, there were other plans in store for the property. In the mid-1920s, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and former United States President William Howard Taft, who you may remember from episode one of this podcast, was also an avid baseball fan, was busy convincing Congress that the Supreme Court should have its very own building. His lobbying efforts paid off and the U.S. Building Commission trained their sights on the property at First and A. After three years of negotiations, the National Women's Party moved down the street to the historic Sewell-Belmont House, and the old brick capital, after 115 years, was torn to the ground. But what became of those old red bricks, I often wonder. As I mentioned in the introduction to this story, the Great Depression was hardly a time to just discard something so valuable. I would venture a guess, that they may have been used in the foundation of the new Supreme Court building, which still stands there today. Those bricks sheltered our founding fathers, stood strong through war and peace and war again, provided the backdrop for the inauguration of a president and the hanging of a tyrant. Children went to school within those walls, dancers danced, and bakers baked, and some of the strongest women in our nation's history called it home. If only those walls could talk, they'd have quite a story to tell.
1: so fire it up and drop the top point it west and never stop the whole wide world is waiting girl let's see it our way cause we only get one shot to live in love and hit that jackpot it's always
0: When people hear the phrase, American food, they often sneer as they imagine a cheeseburger and fries and maybe a slice of apple pie. To me, though, American food is as diverse as the country itself. It's pasties and pork roll and po'boys, New England clam chowder, New Mexican green chili stew, and New Orleans gumbo. It's slug burgers and burgoo, hush puppies, key lime pie, boudin, guetta, loco moco, buckeyes, and lobster rolls. And if you know the right places to get these dishes, they're all amazing. In Washington, D.C., our contribution to the great American potluck is the half smoke. And the place to get it is Ben's chili bowl. Ben Ali was born in Trinidad and moved to the United States to attend medical school at the University of Nebraska. One day, he fell down an elevator shaft and broke his back, forever changing the course of his life. He eventually ended up getting a degree from Howard University in Washington, where he met Virginia, his future wife. The two opened Ben's Chili Bowl at 1213 U Street on August 22, 1958. U Street, at the time, was America's Black Broadway, All of the biggest stars played there, and Ben and Virginia made sure they had somewhere to eat after the show. They welcomed guests like Nat King Cole, L. Fitzgerald, Cab Calloway, Miles Davis, Red Fox, and DC's hometown legend, Duke Ellington. Martin Luther King Jr. stopped by when he was in town. One of the items on their menu was the locally produced half-smoke. A half-smoke is a half-pork, half-beef sausage, seasoned just right, and is one of the very best sausages you're likely to find in this country, in my very biased opinion. Ben and Virginia weren't the first to put the half-smoke on their menu, but they sure made it their own, and quickly. They served their half-smokes on a steamed bun with onions, mustard, and a to-this-day secret chili sauce, which complements it perfectly. The year they opened, a young Navy corpsman named Bill Cosby started coming by and was known to eat six half smokes in a sitting. Cosby and the Ali's became friends, and 27 years later, when The Cosby Show became the number one show on television, he had a press conference and celebration right there at Ben's Chili Bowl. Their first decade was a good one, but the 1968 assassination of Dr. King rocked the Shaw neighborhood where Ben's is located. Violence erupted, businesses burned, and people took to the streets. A curfew was imposed. Stokely Carmichael, also a Trinidadian by birth, was then working with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was located just across U Street. He asked Ben to petition the city to stay open past curfew to keep people fed. Ben did just that, and the restaurant became a peaceful shelter from the storm going on outside, feeding activists, police, and firefighters alike. Ben wrote the words soul brother on the front window, and his restaurant, unlike most of the U Street corridor, was spared. In the wake of the unrest, people began to flee Shaw for the suburbs, and the once thriving Ben's Chili Bowl whittled down to just one employee. They kept open and kept fighting, though, and became the heart and soul of Shaw, where people would stop in for a bite and to catch up on the news and gossip. In 1987, D.C.'s metro system added a U Street stop, a project that took five years to complete. U Street was closed, and it should have driven Benz out of business, but they just built an entrance in the alley and kept right on doing what they do. In fact, since it opened in 1958, with the exceptions of Thanksgiving and Christmas, Ben's has been open every single day. The original counter, stools, and booths are still there. Slowly, but surely, Ben's worked its way into the DNA of the city. When then DC mayor, Marion Barry, traveled to Ghana to meet the mayor of Accra, their capital city, he was greeted with, quote, glad to have you in Accra. Is Ben's Chili Bowl still there? It turned out the mayor was a Howard alum and a big fan of Ben's. Barry was happy to report that it was. In 2008, when we built Nationals Park for our relatively newly acquired baseball team, Ben's finally added a new location. Few things go better together than Nats baseball and Ben's half-smokes. In 2009, just 10 days before his presidential inauguration, Barack Obama stopped by Ben's for a half-smoke. It was a great day for the Ali family, as they got to host the man who would go on to be the country's first black president. And it was a great day for Obama, because he got to eat a half-smoke. Sadly, just nine months later, Ben Ali passed away. His death was mourned throughout the city. Thankfully, his children have stepped in to keep Ben's chili bowl open and to keep his legacy alive. His widow, Virginia, is still there every day. When you come visit Washington, be sure you stop in for a half-smoke and a heaping helping of history. When Ben died, D.C. Mayor Adrian Fenty, had accompanied Obama on his first visit to the Chili Bowl, said this, Ben Ali was a man who invested his life in a small business that weathered many storms and became the soul of a neighborhood and the pride of our city.
1: Tell yourself that jealous.
0: If you grew up in Washington, DC, like I did, it's likely that at some point you've crossed paths with Uncle Beasley. Although Uncle Beasley was not born or raised in our nation's capital himself, he's been a fixture here for over 50 years. Depending on when you grew up would determine where you first met him, as he's moved to a few different neighborhoods over that time span. Uncle Beasley was actually born in Freedom, New Hampshire, hatched from an unusually large hen's egg. You can, no doubt, imagine the surprise of the Twitchell family when they found not a large chicken, but rather a tiny triceratops in their yard. 12-year-old Nate Twitchell raised the triceratops, named Uncle Beasley, until he simply got too big. Then, Nate enlisted the help of a scientist friend, and together they brought him to Washington, D.C., where he lived first at the National Museum and later at the National Zoo. So went the story in the book, The Enormous Egg, by Oliver Butterworth, published in 1956. The real Uncle Beasley didn't hatch from an enormous egg, but rather was crafted in Mayapak, New York, at the studio of legendary wildlife sculptor, Louis Paul Jonas. Jonas had been commissioned by Sinclair Oil to sculpt nine life-sized dinosaurs for their exhibit, Dino Land at the 1964 New York World's Fair. Jonas consulted with some of the country's leading paleontologists to be sure his sculptures were as accurate and lifelike as possible. The Brontosaurus, the largest of the nine, was an incredible 70 feet long. You can probably imagine the stir they caused when Jonas's nine life-sized dinosaurs made their way 125 miles by barge down the Hudson River. While many of the displays at the fair looked towards the future, Sinclair's Dino Land was also a big hit, especially with the kids. After the fair ended, Sinclair loaded the dinosaurs onto custom-built flatbed trucks, and Dinoland toured the country, including an appearance in the 1966 Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. When their nationwide tour ended, the dinosaurs were dispersed around the country, donated by Sinclair to various museums. You can visit them today. The stegosaurus can be found at the Quarry Visitor Center at Dinosaur National Monument. The ankylosaurus is at Houston's Museum of Natural Science. The 70-foot brontosaurus and the tyrannosaurus rex can be found in Dinosaur Valley State Park in Texas. The struthiomimus is in Milwaukee and the trachodon is in Brookfield, Illinois. Uncle Beasley The Triceratops found his way to the National Zoo here in Washington, D.C., where he starred in the film version of The Enormous Egg. In 1967, he made his way to the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum, where he stayed for several years. In the late 70s, Uncle Beasley was placed in front of the Smithsonian's Natural History Museum on the National Mall. It was there that I first met him, and did my best to climb his mighty tail. In 1994, mimicking his journey in the book, Uncle Beasley returned to the National Zoo, where you can visit him today. I'm not usually thinking about him when I go to the zoo, but when I see him, he inevitably brings a smile to my face and a wave of nostalgia to my heart. There is some controversy as to whether this statue is the actual triceratops used in Sinclair's New York State Fair Dinoland exhibit. Several exact replicas were produced from the same mold. The most convincing alternative is sadly in a vacant lot in Louisville, Kentucky, having once stood at the city's Museum of Science and Industry, but there are others in Calgary, Windsor, and St. Louis. In 2004, then-President George W. Bush bought a Scottish Terrier for his wife, Laura, for her birthday. The name they chose for her was a nod to Native Washingtonians' favorite uncle. They called her Miss Beasley.
1: the night on my windshield.
0: Whenever I tell someone that I'm from Washington, D.C., they almost inevitably make some snide comment about the U.S. government. I try and take these frequent occurrences as an opportunity to educate people and remind them that American politicians, almost by definition, come from elsewhere. They are elected in their home states and bring with them their own baggage and background. As an independent city, not part of any state, we have no voting representation in Congress and were only granted the right to vote for president in 1963. Most politicians aren't from Washington, D.C. They just work here. Two notable exceptions spring to mind. The first is former Vice President Al Gore, who considers his home state to be Tennessee but was actually born in Washington, D.C. The second is the subject of this story, Edward William Brooke III, the very first popularly elected African-American senator in American history. Brooke was born in Washington on October 26, 1919. His father was a graduate of D.C.'s Howard University Law School and worked as a lawyer with the Veterans Administration. Because his father had a reasonable salary and a respectable profession, Edward grew up in what he referred to as a cocoon, certainly aware of, but somewhat isolated from, the realities of most of the city's black residents in the 20s and 30s. He attended segregated but prestigious Dunbar High School and went on to earn a sociology degree from Howard University, his father's alma mater, and also that of our first female vice president and first vice president of color, Kamala Harris. Graduating in 1941, Edward immediately joined the army and was assigned to the segregated 366th Infantry out of Fort Devens in Ayer, Massachusetts. It was there that he gained a far clearer understanding of segregation as the base's clubs, pool, tennis courts and general store were reserved for whites only. Although he had no legal training at the time, he often stepped in to defend black enlisted men in military court. Brooks' unit served on guard duty in Italy, as combat was, at that time, also reserved for whites only. When that policy changed, Brooks' fluency in Italian was utilized and he went behind enemy lines to confer with Italian partisans, action which earned him the Bronze Star and Combat Infantryman's badge. Also during his time in Italy, he helped to organize an exhibition match featuring boxing great Joe Lewis, whose story we heard in episode 21 of this podcast. After the war, Brooke returned to Boston, where he attended the Boston School of Law. He struggled to find housing in a decent neighborhood, which sparked a lifetime of dedication to fair housing legislation. After graduation, despite offers from several high-profile firms, Brooke opened his own law office in the predominantly black neighborhood of Roxbury, where he often took on civil rights and veterans cases. Brooke ran unsuccessfully for the Massachusetts House of Representatives twice in the 1950s. In 1960, he won the Republican nomination for Secretary of State, but lost to Democrat Kevin White, whose campaign actually put out bumper stickers calling for people to vote white. In 1962, Brooke ran for and won the position of Attorney General of Massachusetts, the first black person to hold this position in any state. When news of his win reached the White House, President John F. Kennedy called it, quote, the biggest news in the country. After serving two terms as Attorney General, Brooke ran for the U.S. Senate. He beat former governor Endicott Peabody by half a million votes of the two million votes cast in the election. Massachusetts, at the time, was only about 4% black and heavily Democratic, so clearly, Brooke was admired statewide. Edward Brooke, in 1966, became the first popularly elected black senator in U.S. history. The only two other black senators, Blanche Bruce and Hiram Revels, who we will hear more about in an upcoming episode, had been elected by the Mississippi State Legislature during Reconstruction. When Brooke arrived at the Senate chamber, he was escorted down the aisle by senior Massachusetts Senator Ted Kennedy to a standing ovation. I hope he felt it was good to be home. Early in his first term, as he recounted in his book, Bridging the Divide, Brooke went to see the Senate swimming pool. In the pool, when he arrived, were Southern Democrats John Stennis, John McClellan, and Strom Thurmond, who invited him with, quote, no hesitation or ill will that I could see to join them in the pool. He would later recall that, quote, these were men who consistently voted against legislation that would have provided equal opportunity to others of my race. I felt if a senator truly believed in racial separation, I could live with that. But it was increasingly evident that some members of the Senate played on bigotry purely for political gain." End quote. Certainly an interesting observation, and one that sadly holds true today. During his two terms in office, Brooke was one of the Senate's most liberal Republicans, and often opposed President Nixon. Nixon apparently respected him, though, and reportedly offered Brooks several cabinet positions and even a seat on the Supreme Court. Brooke was even seriously considered as Nixon's running mate for the 1972 election. Despite this, he would go on to be the first Republican to call for Nixon's resignation in the wake of the Watergate scandal, and spoke out against Gerald Ford's pardoning of Nixon, saying it set a bad example. Socially liberal, fiscally conservative, Brooke often broke with his own party and more than once publicly disagreed with aggressive civil rights leaders. He was not blind to the plight of black people though and co-authored the 1968 Fair Housing Act with Walter Mondale. He often stated that his job was not to be a national leader for black people, but rather to represent all the people of Massachusetts. In 1978, Brooke ran for a third term. At that time, he was going through a difficult and public divorce, which, along with his outspoken pro-choice stance, didn't sit well with heavily Catholic Massachusetts. That, along with allegations of financial misconduct, would cost him the election. He went on to practice law in Washington, D.C., and later in Boston, and in 2000, a Boston courthouse was named in his honor. Two years later, Brooke was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer and helped raise awareness of men fighting this disease. In 2004, Brooke was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by George W. Bush, a president he often publicly opposed. In 2009, he was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. On January 3rd, 2015, Edward William Brooke III died in his retirement home in Coral Gables, Florida at the age of 95. Soon thereafter, and for the last time, he returned home to Washington, D.C. and is buried across the river in Arlington National Cemetery. Brooke once stated, quote, "'My fervent expectation is that sooner rather than later, The United States Senate will more closely reflect the rich diversity of this great country. Slowly but surely, we're getting there. And that's in no small part thanks to the groundbreaking efforts of Senator Brooke. Hometown, Washington, D.C.
1: There's a rusted pistol in my yard and some daisies that my dreams are pushing up. And there's a promise trying so hard to be more than cold and empty in your cup But then a flower blooms and shows the world sometimes simply And move a mountain but i don't know what it takes to open
0: up That's it for the show this week. Thank you so much for listening. It's great to be back in your speakers and headphones sharing the stories of America. How awesome was the music today? Many thanks to D.C.-based singer-songwriter Ken Francis Wenzel for allowing me to share his music with you in this episode. To find out more about Ken, check out his website, kenwenzelmusic.com. That's kenwenzelmusic.com. Find him on Facebook at Ken Wenzel Music and on Twitter at Cross Kentucky. And of course, please support local music by downloading and purchasing Ken's songs on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks, as always, to Kevin McLeod at IncomTech.com for background music, and to the great folks at FreeSFX.com. Our theme music comes from the legendary Memphis Slim. To find out more about me and my travels, and to catch up on all the adventures I've had in the greater D.C. area this year, head on over to my website, www.MilesToGoBeforeIsleep.com. That's www.Miles, the number two, go before I find me on facebook on twitter at miles to go tweet and on instagram at miles to go before i sleep all using the number two for me and you i'm about to hit the road and head north but my next episode will bring you south deep into the heart of the mississippi delta be sure you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out if you enjoy this show, please take a minute to rate and review it. Until next time, then, I am your host, Mike Harding, and this is American Anthology. Keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure.
1: I've traveled a country over, in each and every.